0: Giphy is a search engine for GIFs, the short animated graphics that we see around the internet and in our messaging applications. Giphy is also a creative platform where people create new GIFs. Every search engine requires the construction of a search index, which is a data structure that responds to search queries efficiently. Since Giphy is a search engine for graphics, there is almost no text inherently associated with each document. Giphy uses a pipeline of different labeling techniques in order to make a GIF indexable by the search engine. In my conversation with Giphy CTO Anthony Johnson, we discuss how to scale a search engine. We discuss why Giphy needs to build new techniques for image processing, how human labeling for machine learning is evolving, and the future of Giphy, both as a creative medium and as an advertising platform. This was an exciting and wide-reaching interview, and I think you'll enjoy it. Anthony Johnson is the CTO of Giphy. Anthony, welcome to Software Engineering Daily.
1: Uh, hi. I'm looking uh, looking forward to, to chatting today.
0: Absolutely. Giphy is a search engine for GIFs, which are the short animated graphics that we see around the internet, and I want to start with a discussion of search, and then we will work our way towards the complexities of searching GIFs specifically in order to build a search engine for anything, whether you're talking about searching for books or products or whatever, you typically need to build a search index. Could you explain what a search index is?
1: Yeah, that's a great point. So in in most traditional information retrieval systems, um, you're going to be building up an index. The idea behind an index is saying um, instead of running through every single possible document or record and looking at the words in that, you're actually going to Pre-process the, the information there, um, and that index is going to be uh, a, a map of where those documents are. So if I'm looking at, a, um, in our case, a GIF, and the GIF um, happens to be tagged with uh, the, the, the word cat, instead of having to scan through hundreds of millions of GIFs to find each one that says the word cat, we're going to have a tree basically, and we're going to go down that tree uh, looking for the word cat, and once we find the word cat, it's going to have an index of where each one of those is in a our, in our larger record set. So let's say there's a million gifts that have the word cat, then once I go down this tree, I'm going to have a list of those specific million cat GIFs.
0: When I was in school, the typical way of querying against this search index, at least that I learned about in information retrieval class, was you have a query, and then the query gets turned into a vector, and then you try to match that vector... Uh, in t- using some kind of like similarity measurement like cosine similarity against the documents in the search index. Um, and then you can use that similarity ranking to uh, to order the search results. Is that still the way that search indexes are queried against?
1: Uh, yes and no. So typically cosine similarity with that kind of metric is it actually is used quite a b- quite a bit, but most of the time, uh, but actually, that's a in a way that's a more recent development. So, um, the historically, um, you you didn't have the luxury of being able to calculate cosine similarity or other such things on on, on the distance. So you actually had to use the indexes to, to pre to such search um, for the documents. Now, um, when you're looking at, and, and so you know as a as a case in point, the traditional. Algorithms for this stuff are things like uh, for ranking are TF-IDF um, and BM25. Um, and let's say that I search for the word cat. I go down this this tree and it gives me a list of documents. Now, um, let's say that I've got a couple of these words. I'm going to combine them and I'm going to look for the ones that have the most significance. So if I look for the word the cat, um, the reality is that I don't really. You know, the truth is that a word like the shouldn't have as much weight in my search because let's face it it's good stop it's, words yeah exactly well no not even stop words so stop words are saying oh. different stop words are saying these words are just let's let's just sort of, like throw them out right you know beginning of the search ah um, oh okay uh, tfidf is saying that every word even if it's not i mean so let's let's say it, so stop word is saying this word is completely useless i'm never going to look at it tfidf and BM25 are going to say something like um, if I look for Obama, uh, 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 I don't know, a, <laughs> a weird phrase. Let's say I look up cat Obama. Well, and uh, let's say that we have I don't know. Let's, let's say ten percent of our GIFT database is cats, um, but only um, only two hundred thousand um, actually tag uh, are tagged with the word Obama. Um, the, fr- the the fact the, the the fact that it's so much rarer means uh, is an indication that the tag Obama should actually be considered much higher in that search than cats alone. So the term the TFIDF is term frequency inverse uh, uh, document frequency. It's, it's it's looking it's looking at that the relatively the, the the relative unusualness of a particular keyword and trying to highlight those over a flat system.
0: That's that's great information. Um, there have been some previous episodes about search uh, that uh, listeners can check out, um, but let's let's talk about GIFs more specifically. One interesting thing about building a GIF search index is that these are essentially unlabeled documents that are hard to label, or there's not a straightforward way to label them because they're just image, they're they're video, fi- or I don't know, they're graphics and. Um, so, theoretically, you would need to be able to associate some text labeling with them um, because if people are entering text queries, then you need to be able to search against a, a labeling system that is that is uh you know commensurate with those queries. How do you get the gifs labeled so that you can build a search index?
1: yeah so you know i'll I'll cover some of it, and some of it i I'll have to leave as uh secret source but um Mysterious. Uh, yeah. Um but the one of the main things we have is we have um, there's, there's a pipeline basically of how a GIF gets processed, um, <clears throat> and that's a combination of um, people uh, uh, inside the company, outside the company, um, tagging certain content. So uh, sometimes we'll have uh, we have partners who have professional content that you know they. they Their job is to, to bring in high quality content. And when they bring in that high quality content, let's say it's a TV show or whatever else, part of what they're going to do is provide that tagging because to them, it's very important that it has, that people can find the right content. Now, that allows us to do things like, uh, TV series. Like, uh, let's say there's a, you know, episode two, season three. Well, we'll, we'll probably have it. We'll have the, the show will be tagged as such. Um, and the only way to find that out is really to have the people who uh, build the content care about that. So partly it's, it's an ownership on their side. In other cases, it's, it's more automatic. So we have human and computer vision pipelines that tag images in the back end. Um, and we expose some small fraction of that to the end users. But in our infrastructure, we actually support the ability to have many of these and leverage them in different ways behind the scenes for various types of searches.
0: It's fascinating how much this human in the loop uh, kind of pipeline processing has begun to propagate to I mean, what we do as computer scientists. Uh, I've done a bunch of shows recently about it. Recently I did a show with um, unbabble which is a translation company, and you know, d- doing translation with a combination of machine techniques and humans in the loop gets you a really robust uh, translation. It seems like this is going to be a model for how we reduce ambiguity uh, in complex querying complex data sets uh, complex labeling for a long time to come i mean i I think you know i think this is going to be like one of the things where if you know as things like warehouses and manufacturing get largely automated this is going to be the blue collar information systems work that is to be done labeling and things like that yeah
1: i i Um, I, I think it's actually you know you you, you've you've kind of nailed it the the if you look at the history of machine learning deep learning any of these things um, there's a there's a great uh, there's a great graph uh, that got published a couple of years ago that shows the, the time when a new data set um, got released to the public and when major breakthroughs happened in in that space so and typically it's if I remember correctly it's about a, it's a gap of a, about two to three years um, there is an argument um, to be made. And, and I, I personally am probably a believer in this, that the vast majority of breakthroughs that we see come from the availability of data and not necessarily new algorithms. Now, um, right now, um, and, and I'll, and I'll get back to, I mean, but, but, you know, when we look at deep learning today, deep learning is an amazing field. Um, but the truth is that a, a, a large portion of the work that we are seeing the fruits of today came from work that was done in the the mid 80s to late 80s. Um, Back propagation uh, uh, connection uh, uh, connectionist systems. Um, this is work that was done. In, I mean, I think the the, the big the big book um, that that inspired people originally was um, I think it's called Connectionism. It was published in about 1986 um I, I mean personally it inspired me i remember reading it in like 92 and, and being absolutely blown away by it now it now it, and i've seen it referred to a lot recently because of the fact that it really was a big moment um the but when you look at all the stuff we're doing today it's a lot of it has to do with massive amounts of hardware and we're, we're running deep learning on huge gpu machines thousands you know tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of machines that are. Optimized for this particular kind of problem, but often they're using the same algorithm. The main, one of the big differences, though, is not only the computational power available, but it's actually the data itself. Um, I can I can now in a week, a couple days even. Actually, I I, I I take that back. I started this yesterday. Um, in four hours, I can go from zero to nothing. Sorry, from nothing to training a neural net on 1.5 million images with uh, 10,000 tags, and two weeks from now, I can expect to actually have a fully trained deep learning model for that.
0: You know, I think about sometimes, we, we, we traditionally think of computing in terms of Moore's law, and I've been starting to think, like, it seems like as our systems have more and more emphasis on deep learning, it's less of a question of Moore's law because this is not really um, something that's as much bottlenecked by a particular like processor architecture. It's more like uh, can you structure the problem in the right way? Do you have enough data? Um, and and you because you can distribute all the computation, so it's not bottlenecked by any specific processor do you think that's is, it, is that accurate or is that too, too, too wide of a statement
1: no i think it's very close to accurate i mean the majority of hmm. back propagation algorithms in in machine in deep learning right now sorry there are variations there's you know there's two three four different variations of um uh, stochastic gradient descent that are completely distributable um, and the fact that that is available means that we can build incredibly complex neural nets and throw them against hundreds of machines, thousands of machines, whatever else, without really having to think about it too much. Um, and the data, and again, the data winds up. I mean, which doesn't mean it's not slow. Let's face it; it is slow. It's a pain to train <laughs> these models, but it is something very tractable. Um, yes. And um, and the you know the flip side of that is the data. So going back to the um, you know the the question around the, the human computer sort of workflow, is that the biggest single issue you ever face in data science is is getting a training set that's usable. So half of that is things like um, um, half of that is, is creating a structure which allows you to have enough samples, positive and negative. Um, the other half is just creating a set that's large enough um, and and then doing feature extraction and all that stuff. And, and, and really, those are the things that um, that are hard and so you 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 know you let's say you've got a couple of short videos how do you get people to to label things as funny well can you build a machine learning algorithm that can actually learn funny Um, well you can you can argue that uh, maybe maybe the answer is no but the the you could sit around all day discussing the theoretical aspects of it Uh, it's a lot easier to do it and then throw it into a, a if you can get that data then you can generate that data, then you can throw it into a model, and maybe you'll get an answer that's surprising. Um, but you have to have the ability to collect that data. And so a lot more work is now going into the creation of these data sets. And the realization that, let's face it, a team of, of data scientists, however brilliant they are, unless they have, the, unless they have a training corpus, um, don't really have the ability to build that much.
0: Yeah. Okay. So we have gotten totally off topic, like <laughs> d- discussing like the abstract concepts of deep learning and human labeling, um, which is a oh, fantastic, fascinating topic, and uh, your opinions are very interesting. But getting back to Giphy, what are some of the hard parts of scaling a search engine? Because Giphy is at this point. Uh, a search engine with an with a large API surface area. There's a huge corpus to be searching. Can you give me some description of what are the difficult parts of scaling that?
1: There's two ways to to, to look at any problem like this. One is, um, you know, how how do you how do you achieve a final solution? And the the truth is, there's a, probably a thousand different ways of achieving a final solution. Um, the other one, I think, that's actually more interesting, is how do you build a organization. That can grow into that and what are the what are the the fundamentals you put in place to to grow a such solution um, and, and to be more concretely uh, and uh, you know to, to to sound less abstract about that like what what I mean by that is <clears throat> understanding that yes we have a search engine now we have we have a fair number of documents let's say it's you know it's on the order yeah you know, it's in the order of hundreds of millions of documents now or gifts um, and uh, um, the the issue is going to be searching for across a hundred million billion documents is a relatively you know trivial task you can out off the out, off the shelf you can you can do that pretty easily and things like MySQL and Elasticsearch uh, can are well within the range of of being able to handle that kind of size of the document um, the the question then winds up being what is your service doing? What is it being used for? And, and where does, what are the pain points? So for us, the biggest pain point is latency. We have very strict guidelines about how fast our API has to respond. So for us, the question isn't whether we can just respond. It's a question of well, can we respond with a latency that's under uh, optimally? Our latency is, is you know, uh, at a very, very rough level. Um, we, we have a goal of 100, under 100 milliseconds for any, any particular query. Um, now, in practice, you know, that, that's a pretty good goal. Um, if you're looking at a mobile phone, you've got latency from the network, uh, you've got latency from various other pieces. And so, the, and we can only control so much of that interaction. But at least we know that 100 milliseconds means that we're probably not going to be the bottleneck on a particular interaction with our service. Um, so tracking that is, is kind of step one. Track, step two is is tracking every single little piece that goes into that. Um, if, uh, if I don't understand the latency uh, of hitting a particular application server from the edge, um, I'm probably not good. I, I probably don't have a complete picture of that. If Once it hits our inf- infrastructure, if I don't understand how long the latency is to hit a database or to hit a, um, a search cluster or whatever else, Again, we're probably not in a good position to, to achieve that because we don't know how to optimize. So partly it's a continuous monitoring exercise and it's in you know like many other things like you have to have internal goals that are um, uh, adhered to and monitored over time, and you have to make sure that if there's something that's not monitored, you you have it as a top goal in the company to add monitoring to that so that it's, there's visibility around that. Um, and if you see degradations, making sure that you, quickly identify why and how to fix it in the future.
0: You're describing this trend in observability, like observability is a huge topic uh, of conversation right now. Um, I had a really interesting interview with James Turnbull, who is the, I think the Etsy CTO, and he wrote a book called The Art of Monitoring, which is all about how to build good monitoring pipelines, how to do observability. Um, can you talk more about how you bake that into the engineering process, perhaps into the culture of, like, because, cause, uh, I mean, a search, is, a search is such an interesting problem where you, like, you really want the latency to be, you really want the latency to be good, especially when you, when, like, people now expect, um, you know, the responsive search or whatever, like, where every time you enter in a letter, it, like, re-queries. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, just discuss observability a little bit more. Yeah. So, um,
1: it's, it, the, the book you mentioned, it's a, it's a great book. I, I, I actually am a big fan of it. But, um, but in general, I think that what we've done to structure that, and I think, truthfully, the only way of doing this, is that every group that is shipping code, I mean, it's effectively an evolution of the whole concept of DevOps. Um, as... As teams, um, yeah, if you, again stepping back a little bit, we we had the notion of a uh, call it a systems group, and their only job, I mean a uh, uh, ops group, and their only job was to deploy code. All right, so we moved away from that. We got to this notion of uh, infrastructure as code. Now different teams had a little bit more control over pieces, um, and and that's good um, because people can deploy, people understand how things are deployed. There's a, a, a bit of a sense of the infrastructure underlying it. Uh, they got lost at some point, uh, mostly around the mid, in the in the the oughts. Um Now people are slightly more aware of the complexity and and what the systems are running on. They're more comfortable with the cloud. More people have exposure to some level of infrastructure and are, are aware of the fact that app uh, you know app code does not live or run in some abstract void. Um, the the downs, the the, um, the next evolution for that has been um, getting. An understanding of performance into application life cycles. Um, you know, there's, there's a, you know, there's the traditional adage of early optimization. Um, uh, well, well, actually, I don't, I don't actually remember the adage, but like, um, but, but early optimization obviously is a, is a terrible thing to do. But, um, uh, the, the idea is really like, how do you, how do you get people to ship code, understand, and then see it in production and be able to, to immediately identify what a problem is? So, um, for, for us and, and for other companies I've worked in the past I'd say six years where I've, I've made this very uh, integral part of routine is every team has ownership of a complete dashboard that they can understand so if I'm shipping a piece of web code then as an engineer in that company I need to be able to and I, my requirement is that I should be able to understand how is that performing on the web like what browsers is it how you know how well is it performing on the browsers, um, and have all that information. And be able to set up alerts so that I understand if I'm tracking well on that. Um, performance should be part of a, the product management um ownership. Like if I we wish you know, that team should own latency, that team should own all those pieces. Um and more importantly it should also own um, the ability to see when there are performance degradations immediately. So if I'm running web code and there is something slowing down in the web, as part of that team, I should know about it immediately. I should be able to diagnose the problem and I should be able to work with others to fix it. If it's if it's in my piece of code, I should be able to fix it and deploy. If it's across the company, I should be talking to those people to understand a little bit more and help out on that.
0: This is like the Werner Vogels quote, you build it, you run it. Exactly.
1: The the idea is to provide the right tooling for people. You don't need to build the monitoring solution. You don't need to build the development the deployment solution, but you need to be able to own. You need to be able to have the tools necessary to be able to understand performance end to end.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about the infrastructure. Um, Giphy is a search engine, but it's also kind of a budding platform. People can create gifs. On top of it, I imagine you have all kinds of interesting internal services as well. So I imagine you want to have a nice infrastructure that engineers can randomly spin up machines and uh, run experiments and stuff. Can you give me an overview of how that's built out and like what cloud you're running on? And I guess just like how the how the culture and how the product is a- influenced how you built out that infrastructure? Yeah.
1: So um the 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 long the, the short version is we are um a I guess traditional twenty seventeen shop where we're using Docker. We are um uh actually uh, we've chosen uh Kubernetes uh right now um as an underlying uh development and deployment platform. Um uh, the um the, because of the history of the company, and I think just because of the general nature of most modern companies today, especially ones like ours where we are dealing with so many different endpoints, we are effectively a polyglot, um, organization. Um, you know, we have preferred tools for preferred things, but, but in the end of the day, we'll accept, we'll, we acknowledge the fact that we will, no one language is going to be, uh, is going to rule them all. So. To, to work around that or to solve that or to help uh, developers with that, we've we have worked, we're working with Kubernetes. Um, as a developer, um, I'm going to bring, I can, from a command line, bring up the entirety, um, well, within, <laughs> uh, bar, barring running out of memory, uh, a, a miniature version of the entire stack or, or most of the stack on my laptop and I sync with two commands from scratch. Um, and I can deploy my code into a new cluster um, uh, on, in the cloud that gets auto-configured and everything else, again, um, with a couple of commands. Um, and you know, the same infrastructure is used for continuous integration, is the same infrastructure used for continuous deployment, and um, within the next couple of months will be used in production as our primary um, uh, sort of cloud infrastructure platform.
0: Now, we are witnessing the growth in popularity, the growth in competitive uh, potential of the Google Cloud, uh, particularly driven by its Kubernetes features as well as the high level managed services built on top of the Google Cloud that are differentiating. Um, though it seems that the Google Cloud has been, I mean, the rise of the google cloud has seen a lot of companies moving well i don't know about a lot of companies but some companies at least feeling comfortable moving towards a polyglot cloud world where like we did a show with meetup recently and meetup has a really interesting infrastructure where it's like a large percentage of it is on google a large percentage of it is on amazon and it's actually copacetic they're fine with that um so, what about you? Have you do you have it uh, centralized or anything, or you're just like Kubernetes on Amazon, and you're you know hedging your bets, or what's going on? Well, there?
1: right now we are running Kubernetes on Amazon, um, and um, you know the uh, the truth is that um, we don't necessarily see a, a reason to have multiple cloud deployments at the moment. Uh, multi-cloud strategy is definitely becoming more prevalent. Um, but really, the you know the first step for any of these things is creating an abstraction layer that makes it uh, um, irrelevant which cloud you're running on, um, and we see Kubernetes as being that solution. Um, so, you know, to answer your question, no, nope, we don't have that strategy right now. Um, but uh, if there becomes a if there comes a day when it's like, yep, yeah, we definitely need to do that, we'll be in a good position to transfer.
0: But it does sound like you're using some of the Google APIs, like maybe Google Cloud Vision, or some of these other higher-level APIs. No,
1: actually, right now we don't. Uh, we uh, most oh. of our CV work is done in-house.
0: Okay, interesting. Uh, have you evaluated those options, or you just think they're too uh, brittle? Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, uh, most of the CV stuff out there uh, doesn't perform all that much better than what I can, what you can download, uh, open source. Uh, ironically enough, uh, and I, I mean, I think you know maybe if you looked at if you look at the absolute performance numbers, you know maybe it's like ninety seven percent versus ninety eight percent. But the reality is, for us, the majority of time when we're looking at our content, we don't care that there is a plate in the image; we care that there is a happy face that has been made out of sausages. Uh-huh. Right, 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 right. And so, you know, we have a our, we have our own domain that we're training against and that we're working with that just isn't part of the equation for Google.
0: This is so interesting to me because uh, the that translation episode I mentioned that I did with Unbabel, they were talking about how so the, a lot of the translation work they do is in the domain of customer service, like you have a Zendesk ticket and they translate it into different languages, and so that builds their. Their machine learning uh, training uh, model um, to be biased towards the domain of customer service, and so it it ma- it makes it operate in a way that is much different than these um, one size fits all uh, translation interfaces, like the ones that you could you can get as, as an API from Google off the shelf. Yeah,
1: I mean, and even even Google's. I mean, originally it was I, mean, I believe the training set for Google originally was the U- the transcripts from the UN.
0: Oh, okay.
1: so I, I don't, I don't know what kind of bias that introduces, but it's going to be, it's going to be a little weird.
0: <laughs> diplomatic. Yeah,
1: very, very diplomatic. No, no swear words, nothing like that. Um, <laughs> but you know, and, and, you know, to the, on the topic of swear words, you know, it's kind of thing like we, we have, uh, you, you need to train your, your model for the purposes, um, that you are looking for. If I, if I don't know that, uh, if, if our models don't know that, um, uh, well, I won't use swear words as an example, but um, if, if um, our systems don't know that um, uh, hey with three Y's is different, is not really the same thing as hey with just one y, and it expresses a different emotional content, um, that's something that we need to capture. Um, but perhaps Google doesn't.
0: Are you building any kind of graph structure that will let you relate different GIFs to each other?
1: Um, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the simple answer is we already have. I mean, if you look at tags, then you're already, you're, Tagged, you're yeah, already looking at.
0: That's true. Uh, that's, it's implicitly a graph. It's,
1: it, it is a graph. And, you know, we have some, they're obviously, we have lots of plans around that. But, uh, but the truth is, like, mm. we, you know, where else can you go and find a, a single a piece, a gif and say, okay, find me other, uh, I don't know, Beyonce gifts? That, that truthfully is, is the closest to a human, uh, connected graph uh, that in many ways is out there.
0: So, uh, this is kind of a weird question, but is GIFs, like a, a GIF search engine seems like the kind of thing where it's like at first glance, it's like, okay, whatever, Google could just build this too, Facebook could just build this, like whatever, whoever could build this. But it seems like one of these things where like you look at, you start to look at the problem under a microscope and it's like, this problem is actually way more complicated and takes way more engineering work than just somebody deciding, okay, we're going to stand up a team at Google to make the GIF search engine. Is that accurate?
1: Um, I mean, I, 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 I certainly hope so. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's uh, um, the. I think there is an impression that it's an incredibly simple thing to do. Um, and the reality is that It is an entire ecosystem uh it is a search it's thinking about how people express themselves it's thinking about what kind of how you identify content that is meaningful in different contexts and building the ability to provide that um and you know there are similarities like there's the word search right but like the the truth and and i think we all have forms that fall into that uh, trap of, of of trying to find the closest analogy um but um, it it truly is a different problem than anyone's ever dealt with before, um, and, and we wind up building you know we're building a bunch of technology that is, um, I mean I mean truthfully I mean just I, I I've only been here six months and then, and, and then the some of the stuff that we that Giphy has had to build to, to to be able to be Giphy is absolutely mind-boggling, um, and it's around understanding GIFs, around manipulating GIFs, around indexing, searching, cre- uh, like working out the value of content, understanding what what is relevant today, what is topical, all these aspects um, and uh, you know everything you can imagine every single problem that Twitter, Google and uh, Facebook have ever had all kind of combined into uh, one but hidden behind the scenes.
0: It does defy analogy to previous services. It's not like you can say, "Oh, it's like it's like YouTube because it's like videos, kind of." It is like no, because you don't mess, you don't frivolously message somebody a YouTube video to uh, like the same way you would message an emoji. Um, but people do that with gifts, so it has such a different emotional valence.
1: Absolutely, and 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 the emotional valence, depending on where you're using and how you're using it, changes constantly. Um, if you're talking to your grandmother, probably going to use a different set of gifts than your best friend, um, <laughs> and we need to be able to support that. Um, and the, the the language you use might change, but it might not change that dramatically. So, how do you support that long term?
0: What about databases? Where, how do you store the gifs? Is there there must be some level of complexity, like as you could do stuff where, like, you want to make the first I don't know the first two seconds of a, or the first X frames of a gif more accessible, so you can preview it or something. I I don't know. Can you give me maybe a description of the storage model?
1: Well, I could. Uh, I'm trying to. Think, yeah, I mean, so that's that's when we start getting into some of the, the more interesting uh, complexities. Um, there are some very interesting storage models, both on the database side and the, um, you know, I mean, I, and, and I mean, on the database side, honestly, we're using scale-out solutions. You know, the you know standard, the standard things you can imagine a company that needs to be able to scale out horizontally or across multiple data centers does. Um, on the storage structure, um, you know, I think uh, that's actually one of the aspects where we have uh, some very interesting. Proprietary work that we've been building out um, around, like, how do you, you know, what 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 do next generations, uh, next generation image and video pipelines truly look like? Um, How do you, you know, how do you move past? uh, Like, FFmpeg is a great piece of, yeah, is a great tool, Um, and everyone uses it. But you know, at no point was FFMPEG designed to to live in a uh, massive, massively distributed cloud system. Um, at no point was it designed to uh, to have like you know sub sub uh, um, sort of hundred, two hundred millisecond response times. Um, and uh, our infrastructure is being built around that. Uh, and truly creating a, 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 I mean, what what as far as as far as we know, certainly really the next generation of of um of sort of low latency scale out um image processing.
0: Yeah, and uh, one thing I read about in some interview about Giphy was this g- thing called Giphy DVR, which is sort of an attempt to tackle the problem of we've got videos all over the internet, but most of those have not been converted into gifs and in a perfect world, you would be able to query against Giphy for any GIF in any video that would be some substring or some sub uh, concatenation of images in the video. Uh, and Giphy DVR is the system where like, you can put in a video and it looks through the video and finds plausible GIFs, like just basically it tries to, I guess, uses machine learning to try to figure out which of the areas in the video would be an interesting GIF. Uh, is that accurate like how yeah. how does Giphy dvr work? Uh, well I mean, I think that's you, you
1: actually summarized it pretty well. I mean, you know, okay. if you're looking at a particular uh, domain, let's say we're looking at like know um, basketball or something. If I have uh, 4 hours of that, um, you know, part of the part of the, the the goal is to create a system that can look at that and say, yes, here's 4 hours of a game, but here's the 16 6-second slices that you care about, and and part of that is looking at you know scene by scene changes. Is looking at the main specific types of, uh, you know, of, of 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 changes that will help you identify that. I mean, let's you know for example, if I'm I mean, if I'm looking at a sports game, um, having algorithms that understand that yes there is a score. Um, yeah, I mean like if I'm looking at football, uh, sorry soccer, and uh, and someone scores a goal, well generally speaking people don't score that many goals. So chances are, that's going to be a big moment. Um, and having algorithms that can use that information sort of ambient information, extract those features, and create the the, the system that automatically create, uh, 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 highlights the important parts of that. Now, um, yeah, when you when you have billions of hours of video, however many, I think it's probably billions, billions of hours of video uh, on the web and being created, and you know, millions of hours could be created every single day, the uh, that's the kind of infrastructure you need, um, and so when I you know when I'm talking about our, our kind of next generation image processing, um, it's really a combination of those things. It's it's the mechanisms that that shape images, that transfer images, but it's also the, the infrastructure that helps run those kinds of algorithms at scale uh, when you have enormous amounts of data being pumped through the system.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the team structure and the way that different teams work together. And I guess the place I want to start is the – there's kind of the, this interesting relationship between the creative team and the engineering team, I think, because as I understand it, Giphy, you have like a studio side. And the Giphy studio side is where you make gifts, and you potentially work closely with brands to get gifts made that, you know, it's like benefits the brand. It makes the brand look good and people maybe want to share like a Snickers GIF um, and it gets the brand some recognition can you describe how you structure the relationship between the creative side and the engineering side?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I, mean, I think we, uh, um, is a very interesting company. I think the, the, um, you know, when you look at the, 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 background of a lot of the engineers, um, and the interest of a lot of engineers here, um, there is a strong, uh, artistic bent, whether it's, uh, actual art, whether it's, you know, uh, photography, music, whatever else, uh, and, there's a very strong component of that being the the idea that engineering should not be the standalone concept that never interacts with anything else, um, yeah. and I think and part of the and, and part of the ethos that we we strive to keep is to make sure that there is a constant um, interest and respect and fascination with things outside of you know did someone create a new algorithm that lets you sort uh numbers faster and you know and says like oh wow here's a here's a, a deep learning model that actually produces art that's awesome yeah you know, and and creating that that, that you know the, the traditional phrase of a you know cre- creating that culture of a, a sort of fascination of of, of sort of a, um, exploration um i think you know with studios we i mean part, with studios we we are Uh, as a company we are exposed to the amazing uh, work they do every single week and that we we they literally are presenting um, anything that they've created anything that the the artists that have have done um and we have artists in residence we have animators we have absolutely there's a variety of different uh, uh, types of of art being created there and part of it for us is being exposed to that on a regular basis um Mm. for the engineering side is, is creating tools for them and and often and <clears throat> and one of the things we're we we releasing we'll be releasing a lot more of this year is some of the incredible uh, overlap between those two uh, pieces of, of technology the art and the art of the technology um, there's a lot of stuff that we've done um, and yeah. uh, you know we're we're actually very excited to to release these kind of pro- these, these these incredible projects um, into the public. Um, Some of them have been uh, done in shows. So we we actually have had uh, several art shows in the last six months, even, um, showing some of the the, the sort of fun intersections of of just on a purely technical level, I guess on a a computer level, websites and interactive art, but also physical installations, um, installations that leverage uh, GIF infrastructure, um, uh, give, uh, give uh, give a whole ecosystem around that, Um, to provide things that let you interact with uh, animations and GIFs and stickers um, in the physical world.
0: I think that that structure that you just articulated about Giphy is one of the first companies where I really feel like it's leveraging what you get out of being in New York. Because, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about, like, is it better to build your company in San Francisco or New York? And, and uh one thing that's for sure is in New York, you're going to get more aggressive hybridization of, like, culture slash media slash music slash art with, in- with engineering. So a little less of that in San Francisco, I feel. And I think that's, like, that's a real competitive advantage that Giphy has. And especially when you're talking about breaking down the silos between... Um, like advertisers and um, and their fans uh, and and kind of like the marketing messages and like uh, the you know kind of the way that that, that um, online advertising works right now, where you have like this church and state separation of who's making the advertising content versus who is distributing it. Um, you know, I think it makes me feel like Giphy is really well positioned.
1: I mean, I'm I'm certainly not going to disagree with you. Um, I mean, I spent uh, two and a half years, I think, in San Francisco, and uh, you know, I've, I've I've been around the country, and um, uh, more sterile. It's a lot more sterile. Yeah, and and I was you know it was a great experience in many ways. It's being surrounded by other technologists, but um, I actually you know I don't find it nearly as creative, and I don't find that people. I feel that I think that I think the problem when you have too many people in tech thinking about tech is that you lose track of, of end users, you lose track of of um, what you should be able to give back to the world as a product um, because you become so entrenched in your own uh, world. You know I mean? Ad tech has the same problem. If the only thing I care about is, is a click-through rate, then I don't necessarily know what message I'm conveying to the human beings on the other end. Um and I think that
0: not to mention you incentivize fraud.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, and well, and and the fact that you don't even know the difference, right? I mean, that's that's. I mean, that's probably it. it's like you can have massive ad tech fraud, and the reason you can is because it's so decoupled from humans.
0: So exactly this, and this is something. So I've done a bunch of shows on advertising fraud recently. I've been thinking deeply about advertising fraud and where we asymptote towards uh, in terms of advertising because. Google is an advertising business. Facebook is an advertising business. I don't want to see these companies go anywhere, but when you look at how problematic the state of online advertising is, it... I don't know. It kind of worries me, but I, I guess it will take a while for advertisers to sort of wake up and see how much of their money is sort of going down the drain, being viewed by bots and uh, and, and whatnot. I mean, have you thought? Have you thought deeply about the fraud problem, or uh, do you have any thoughts on it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I mean I, I don't know if I ever think deeply. Um, the um, uh, I think you know with with the fraud problem for us, I mean, uh, is obviously a. Um, it is is actually a real concern and and partly um, because for us if we don't if there is fraud if we have if we have people um gaming our system it will create a, a worse user experience um and and for us the the primary goal of the company is to create a create a fantastic user experience so Fraud is something that we are incredibly concerned about for us, right? And we we want to make sure that um, at no point do we get uh, denatured um, by the equivalent of thinking of of an ad tech, of a purely ad tech thinking. Um, And I I think we're we're well positioned. I think I I think we're in a great position actually to to provide a more organic, healthier. Interaction uh, for brands than has been possible with any of the ad tech world out there. Um, and uh, yeah, so. But is,
0: is it a movement? Is, are we going to have a movement where advertisers are going to have to start to say, look, this is kind of a lost cause. Like, it's funny because we started off the conversation talking about observability, um, but the problem with ad tech is it seems like observability drives fraud, and uh, maybe the solution is we don't observe very much, or we have some some very crude, high-level observ- observability that um, that is so high-level that it's um, very difficult for any individual fraudster to take advantage of. Um
1: yeah. yeah I, what's what's this? I, I mean, I'm gonna. I, I would. I would disagree then that I'm. I'm someone who believes fundamentally and in, like in in sort of visibility as a, you know, in transparency as being the solution to these things. Um, I think that I think ad tech is is the issue is not measurability. I think the the issue there is uh, the inability to measure the right things. Um, and uh, we and I think you know, what will happen, I hope what happens is that we don't move away and we don't shy away from, from visibility and, and measuring of, of uh, uh, because of, of the bad taste um, that gets left in the mouth after, like, ad, uh, you know, with ad tech fraud, but rather uh, that we get better at measuring the right things that are truly indicators of how people are interacting with you, are interacting with your, your brand, are interacting with you as a company or as an individual um which is much harder <laughs> but but i think much more valuable
0: well yeah and so, so to that end are people making gifs aggressively and uploading them because i know that's that is like kind of a side feature of gify right now at it it like right now it seems like you're very focused on curating the gif content and letting people uh letting it be indexed letting people send gifs and messages really quickly um and there's like you know you want to be able to send a gif of taylor swift making a cute expression um or kanye west like doing something weird um what about the creative side how like how much is gif creation growing
1: i think i I mean i actually don't have a clean way of measuring that because i what i see what i see is um, we see gif creation as, and we see, we see gifs as an art exploding and we see people who in their spare time at lunch are you know maybe they have jobs as a graphics designer and lunchtime they're creating amazing gifs um and uh, i mean I, I i don't know if i can i don't know if i can give reveal the names uh, i think i well I mean, I, but doesn't i mean the, the example i'm thinking of is a um, a woman who who um, uh, created uh, the most popular, most viral um, GIF for Obama last year. Actually, it was, sorry, it was the most popular viral GIF last year, but it was for Obama. Um, and it's 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 a side job, but she does that and she does it every day. And it um, it 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 got hundreds of millions of views. Um, and it's the kind of thing where, as an artist, you're able to do that. And I think that's there's there is something. Where that is growing, um, and, and as the form, as it develops as, a, as both a form of art and as a, and as a form of expression, I think that it, that will get increasingly large. You know, we, we, we see that potential. We see the adoption with things like, uh, Giphy Cam as being something where people are increasingly creating their own content. Um, and, and sometimes they're sharing it and sometimes they're publishing it and sometimes they're leveraging all these things. Um, and, w- and you know we will we see a future where everyone has a set of of gifs some of that they use on a regular basis some of which are things that they created um, with whatever panoply of tools we hope to see in the future.
0: What's the biggest vision? Uh, just to close off, what's the biggest vision for what Giphy could grow into?
1: I think the biggest vision of what Giphy can grow into is 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 a little bit weird. But when you look at written word, written word has. A limitation in how much information it can convey it uh, it's hard to convey emotions succinctly it's hard to convey the, the depth um, the the opportunity for short-form content is to provide the the, the richest um, medium to express emotions to convey a great deal of information and to be able to augment how people interact uh, one-on-one, to groups, and to communicate with a broad audience. Um, if if we are able to grow into all those things, then we can, we can change how people uh, communicate and provide a, a much better mechanism than anything possible today.
0: Anthony, that's a great place to close off. I, I want to appreciate you for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. It's been a great conversation. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.